as Nate was uh, mentioning earlier about the, uh, the various camps, uh, don't forget, church folk, we need to sign up your children as well. So if you haven't got your kids registered yet, please uh, let Allison know. You can send an email or contact us here at the office um, and make sure we get them registered. We hadn't had those signs out even in an hour. When, when Nate and I came back to the office, Allison was on the phone writing. I mean, people started calling immediately. And uh, over the weekend, I had been getting email after email and it's uh, just been a real blessing to see the response that quick. And I mean, literally, we had just gotten the signs in the ground and hadn't even made it back to the church, and people were already phoning. So uh, keep praying for that. Uh, we recognize if this continues, we may have to revamp our schedule because the last thing I want to do is turn away kids because we don't have the, the means, the space, the workers. So please pray about how you can be involved. There is a possibility if it keeps filling up, we may have to revamp the schedule and even do maybe a second camp in the evening, which I know will help a lot of you who work. So just keep that in mind. Pray about that. We don't know what the Lord is going to do with it. Right now, we're capping it at 30, 30 kids per camp. That'll be 30 for volleyball, 30 for soccer, and 30 uh, for the uh, basketball. Um, but again, it, it, is, it is changing daily. And uh, we need to be ready to move with that flexibility if need be. So just keep praying. And then also, as was mentioned, uh, grab these signs. Keep these in your yards uh, unless you're not living right. <laughs> anyway, some of you won't like that, but some of you got that. Okay, let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8. And we are in a new chapter, and uh, I can go ahead and let you know, it's been a rough week in study. This is, uh, my wife can vouch, a lot of late nights this week, wrestling through. Some of you who are my, my theological scholars in the room, you understand why this chapter is one of those chapters where everything theologically kind of comes to a head. This is where uh, you make some decisions if you're digging deep in the well of God's Word as to which path you're going to go out from in regards to, to this text. Now, with that said, um, I recognize with all that's packed in this short little chapter, uh, this is not going to get unpacked here today. It hasn't been solved in the, in the theological realm of debate uh, there are two various camps. Uh, there's actually many, many little splinters of those camps that we'll talk about today. But we're not going to solve this here this morning, but we are going to hit on this, and I do want us to think deeply. But let me say off in the offset. Even your pastor still works through some of these debates some of these differences. Now, I will say, and as we get there, the main and the plain is still the same, no matter which path. And we'll talk about those two paths as we get a little deeper in the sermon. But the main and the plain is the same, and that is the thing that unites us, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin that's found only in Him. By faith are you saved. By grace you are saved 
through faith. These things are agreed upon in both camps. So we're going to look at both camps. You'll probably get into, go ahead and let my uh, care group leaders know tonight. I gave you softball questions tonight, so you don't have to worry about getting in too deep into the muddy waters of this. But if questions should arise, write them down, and we'll do our best to try and get you some answers to tackle some of those. Good Bible scholars, good Bible students, followers of Christ, we shouldn't be afraid of taking the hard questions. This is what grows us in our faith. As much as this week has been a difficult week in study, because look, I came to this passage again already knowing where I stand, but if I'm going to be an honest student of the Word, I need to wrestle through the various arguments. And as you wrestle through deep subjects, you get challenged. You get sharpened. You may even move off of a position that you were dogmatic on before because the Spirit of God has made His truth clearer. We must all be teachable, right? Even your pastor. So I say all that to say, buckle up. Uh, this is probably not going to be your typical, you know, surface level sermon. Make you feel good. And I'm not going to bat my eyes and smile a lot and just say, well, God loves you. It's not one of those kind of sermons, though he does love you. So let's, let's take a look at the morning text, chapter 8. And, and before we dive in there, let me just kind of read a little bit. Because since chapter 5, since chapter 5, we've been introduced to this subject in the book of Hebrews. The point was made that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. You remember, that's what we've been wrestling through the past several sermons. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, go back. We've got a podcast now. You can listen to the old messages. And so, all the Old Testament priests established from the time of Aaron and Moses, from the time of Aaron and Moses onward, the priests were according to the order of Levi. You remember us talking about this. They were all descendants of Levi. You couldn't be a priest in the Old Testament in Israel if you weren't descended from Levi. The very fact that Jesus, who by the way, is not from the tribe of Levi, right? Which tribe is he from? Judah, right. In fact, John calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah in the book of Revelation. The fact that Jesus was not descended from the tribe of Levi, his priesthood was according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews says and shows that there was an imperfection in the Levitical priesthood that could only be addressed in the person and priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's what chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 we've been talking about, we've been teaching on. Again, if you want the details, go back and, and listen to those, please. It will help, help lay the groundwork as to why we are where we are in this study. Furthermore, it was pointed out that the Levitical priests lived and ministered. They lived and ministered and then did what? Somebody? What happened to them after that? They died. Okay? Again, there's an imperfection with the Levitical priesthood. All the priests, they lived, they ministered, but then they died. There's an imperfection. Okay, they died, just like all of us. But Jesus' priesthood is a priesthood that is forever. 
because he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, we've talked about that in the language that's written in the account of Genesis, not to say that Melchizedek was this ah, mystical character who, you know, it, it was saying that we, they didn't have the record of his beginning, they have no record of his end. So, so there's this idea of this continual. And by the way, that was preceding the whole Levitical priesthood line, which was why Melchizedek was revered amongst the Jews. And so Jesus is of that order. No beginning, no ending. But in Jesus' case, it's not just a reflection, it's not just symbolic, it's the real thing. He's God incarnate. So, here's Jesus of the order of Melchizedek with the power of an indestructible life. And it's pointed out in chapter 7 that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek because an oath has been taken by God to him. Remember, we talked about the oaths and the promises. And again, that was one of the differences. In fact, it was quoted from Psalm 110. We talked about this last time we were in the text. Psalm 110 says, This day I have sworn you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, a prophetic psalm referencing Christ. And so Jesus' priesthood is superior that way. His priesthood is superior because he's without sin. Levitical priests had to offer sacrifice for their own sins before they offered sacrifices for the people's sins. But Jesus did not because he was perfect. So in all of these ways, Hebrews 7 emphasizes that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Old Testament priesthood descended from Levi. That's the background. So now we're in chapter 8. So with that thought in mind, let's pick up the author's uh, storyline here in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. <laughs> Hold on just a minute. Time out, Bo. Time out, Bo. Don't you love it when God puts something like that in the Scripture? It makes my scooby ears go up. <laughs> now, this is the main point of the things that we've been saying, the things we're saying. Here's the main point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle with which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant 
had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, I ask that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lead me, Lord. Give me clarity of thought. Uh, Lord, you know as I have poured over this study, uh, the issues that have been wrestled through, Lord, help me to only share that which needs to be shared in this context, in this setting, in this forum, that will be beneficial to the hearer, that will help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, challenge us from your word that we will also take from this text and have application, that we might live different than how we came in. And Father, I pray most importantly, if there's someone here, that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let today be their day of salvation. May their heart be broken, wholly surrendered. In Jesus' name, amen. So, old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I understand this in a personal salvation sense. Uh, When the Lord got a hold of my life at age 25, I was radically converted and saved. And the old Jeremy passed away, and behold, there was a new. I understand that as I came to know Christ, my heart was changed. And so from an individual understanding in a salvation sense, you believers know that. But what we want to look at today in the writer in Hebrews is addressing it in a covenant sense. The old covenant versus the new covenant. What's this about? What does this mean? What's going on here? Let's see if we can unpack this. So the first thing that we're going to look at is how Christ is a better priest. This is verses 1 and 6. And if you're taking notes, I only got two major points today, two points in this text that you'll see. A better priest and a better covenant. So let's look at verses 1 through 6, and and let's kind of focus in here again on on verses 1 and 2. As I mentioned a while ago, he said, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest. 
a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now think about this. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the Levitical practices, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and once, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, which is, by the way, the, the top of the ark, the two angels in between. That was God's abode. The, and, and so he was quick to sprinkle that blood. He didn't waste a lot of time in there, and he was ready to get out. There was a great fear in the presence of God. By the way, before he entered in there, he would make sure he washed first. He would offer sins for him. He would offer the sacrifice for his own sins first before he would offer that to the people. He would go into that one room and you would have the, uh, the table of showbread. You would have the, the light, uh, the, uh, the seven uh, lamps lit there. And again, because that was a dark room. And all of these artifacts, somewhere down the line, I actually even thought about doing it here at this point. Uh, I chose not to. But at some point, I hope to do a topical study on how all the artifacts in the temple uh, represent how Christ fulfills those. Those are, again, shadows and types. They all represent Jesus Christ. But this priest would, after making that sacrifice, would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. But there's one thing this priest would never, ever think of doing. Sitting. So put it in the context of the reader. The author of Hebrews is writing a group of Jewish audience predominantly struggling with should we continue practicing the Old Testament practices, animal sacrifices, going to the temple, these type things, or should we fully embrace our great high priest, Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's come in the flesh, fulfilled all of those types. Some of them were wholeheartedly following Jesus. Some of them are sitting on the fence, uncertain, still have yet to truly be born again. Therefore, they were struggling with, do I go back? Do I go forward? And then you had those who were just scoffers, who were still in the midst, saying, you need to get back to these old, these old practices, the things our forefathers taught us. And that's the dilemma. So when you think of the context of that, imagine when the writer says to the audience, Jesus, a great high priest, sat down. There's no seat in the earthly temple other than the mercy seat. And you talk about blasphemy. To sit in the place that only God can sit? Hello, hint, hint, hint. Jesus, as God incarnate, as our high priest, is seated, which also indicates it's finished. You don't sit till you're ready to rest. You don't sit unless the work's done. Jesus sat. The language that's used here is intentional. It's finished. These practices were 
types. They were pointing to the substance. They're symbolic. They point to the substance. Jesus Christ is the substance. He's the fulfillment. He's finished it. He's ascended into the Holy of Holies, the true tabernacle. Continue reading. Notice what it says. Now this is the main point of these things. We're saying we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. By the way, the right hand is is just simply, again, language referencing the position of power, authority. The right hand of the throne of the majesty. It's a seat of honor. It's a seat of power. Again, the only place for God to be. And so... Christ, our Savior, our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's a minister. Notice, let me, let me go back here, I want you to read this. By the way, so, so, as, so as to not sound blasphemous, it's actually biblical. Did you know that one day you too will sit on the throne. (gasps) What? Whoa, wait a minute, preacher. Well, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Revelation 3.21 To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You want a promise? You want a better promise? There's you a better promise. Just as Christ was promised this position to sit, you and I positionally in Christ will one day sit with Him. Because He's overcome the world. And how are you an overcomer? How am I an overcomer? By faith in Christ. The work's done. It's finished. And we will Be in Christ. We are in Him positionally. If you're a believer, positionally, one day we will see Him as He is. We will know Him for who He is in the fullness sense. And we too will be known in that sense. Understand this. Our high priest is seated. All authority in heaven and on earth is His. Let me just give you a quick application. That should give you amazing hope. That should give you great encouragement. Not of anything found in you. Our position in Christ has nothing to do with you and me. It has everything to do with Him and what He's done. So, He's a better priest. He's a better priest than those old guys that used to die and you had to drag them out because you heard the bell go silent. So, what else? Jesus ministers in the true heavenly sanctuary. Verses 2 through 5. Notice here what we find in the text. Um, It says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. You remember? And he'll talk about it here in just a little bit. The tabernacle was a replica Moses was given instructions on the Mount of Sinai to 
to write this down in detail, and it had to be very detailed. If you want the detailed account, go back and read it. It's very detailed. God's a God of detail. He's a God of order. I know us big picture people, we struggle with that. That's why we hire people like Nate to be on our staff to help us, right? So God is a God of detail, and there was detail. But wait a minute. The detail is simply a copy of what's in the heavenlies. It's a shadow. It's a type. This is why this is better. This is why Jesus is a better priest. He ministers in a sanctuary, in the true temple, the true tabernacle, and not a temporary tent. Remember, they'd have to fold up shop when they came out of Exodus. Move, right? Not anymore. Even when the the permanent uh, temple was built in all of its grandeur and glory, it doesn't even come close to the true tabernacle. And I know there's other things we could look at in the New Testament teaching and your body's the temple and these type things. But again, understand this. Christ is the fulfillment. He is a minister of of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle. Built by Him, not by man. Notice uh, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Well, let's talk about this priest. Let's talk about Jesus. Did he have any gifts? Did he offer any sacrifice as a priest? You better believe it. The high priest would offer the sacrifice first, then enter into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the sacrifice upon the mercy seat, atop of the Ark of the Covenant, and then he would have the basin of incense which would be offered after the sacrifice as prayers on behalf of the people. Now, by the way, that's one of the things we've already learned in previous chapters. What is Jesus Christ doing today? He ever lives to intercede on your behalf. He, when we don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit gives groanings. There are prayers constantly being offered into the presence of God through our intercessor, Jesus Christ. Christ prays for you. Now, that's not just one of the things He does. He intercedes in many ways. He's our atonement. He's our righteousness. He's our everything. But again, when you see the incense being offered and you think of the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat, everything points to Jesus Christ and His fulfillment and what He has done. The book of Leviticus describes the required gifts and sacrifices the priests were to make on behalf of the people. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Each sacrifice has specific guidelines and rituals required when making them. However, the result was the same. When the offering was made, it was accepted by the Lord and became a pleasing aroma to Him. Biblical language. The priests were the only ones able to offer these gifts and sacrifices. It was their primary duty. In the same way, Jesus, our high priest, was also required to offer both gifts and sacrifices. The difference is that Jesus' gifts and His sacrifice were far superior to the gifts offered according to the law. He did not bring animals to sacrifice as a covering for sin. He presented His body which was prepared and given for this very purpose. His sacrifice 
completely wiped away sin and its effects. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' sacrifice was a fragrant and pleasing aroma to God. Ephesians 5.2 In fact, Jesus' gifts and sacrifice did several things that the Levitical priesthood could never do and only hinted at. First, Jesus paid the debt left by sin. Jesus paid the debt in full. It's finished. Your balance is zero. If you are a born-again believer, your sin debt, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's like a charge card. You're just adding up. You're adding up. Your sin is mounting. The wrath of God is still being held back by the grace of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but all will come to repentance. But if you do not repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ one day, payment day. The bill comes due. You know, isn't that, that, that's kind of like a credit card. Though. You, you, you're living it up for a while. Cha-ching! 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 Woo! Man, I got all kinds of good stuff. Oh, the bill's due. And the next thing you know, it's you upended. Sin is very much like that. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but then the payments do. Guys, Jesus Christ has paid our debt in full. He's a better priest. It doesn't just cover temporarily until you come back next year and see us. No, He does away with it completely. It's wiped clean. Why would you hold on to the elementary things? Why would you go back into the old way of things? Why would you pursue that which is seemingly right in your eyes when God has given you something greater and better? He offers you the forgiveness of debt of your sin. Why not turn to Christ? And so the writer's pleading with this Jewish audience predominantly, but he's pleading with us through these texts today to say, repent and believe. Secondly, he took our old sin nature, gave us a new life. That's why when we do counseling, we call it the exchange life counseling. Because... Our answer is found in the life of Christ. Christ didn't just die for us to be saved from hell. Christ died to save you from sin. And that's present tense. His desire is to sanctify us, deliver us from those sins that are so easily tripping us up. Look to your great high priest. So, he took our old sin nature and gave us a new life. We have a new life in Christ. I can live a new life. I don't have to be the old man I once was. I don't have to be a slave to my sin. I now can be a slave to righteousness. I can yield my body as an instrument. I can choose to follow Christ through the Holy Spirit's leading through the truth of His Word as He directs my step. I could never do that before until my heart was made new. So, next He died so we could live apart from the new, from, so that we could live apart from the law. 
while obtaining the righteousness described within the law. Let me say that one again. He died so we could live apart from the law while obtaining the righteousness described within the law. There are a lot of people as I'm studying this that want to try to make the argument that because the old covenant has passed away, because the old covenant is done, somehow therefore the law is, is no longer useful. That, that you do away with it. It's done. Isn't that what it says in verse 13? And so they'll make these kind of arguments. But guys, no. The law was fulfilled. Christ fulfills it. And the law is still very much useful. The moral law has always been and always will be because it is a, a representation, a personification, if you will, of God Himself. The very character of God and the morality of, of law is, is exemplified in the person of Christ. Thou shalt not lie. Why? Because God is truth. And you can go through uh, the, those moral laws and see that these are extensions in character of who God is. And we're reiterated, be holy in the New Testament, be holy for I am holy. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ because He fulfills the requirement of the law. The righteousness was met in Christ. Apart from that, me and you are in big trouble. And that's why we have to return, I believe, in our evangelism to using the law because it's the law that condemns. Paul said, I would not have known not to covet had I not read in the law, thou shalt not covet. So what does that mean? Well, it means I'm going through life cruising along hunky-dory and then all of a sudden I'm confronted with the truth and now... I stand accountable. And this is why in our evangelism, I love the way of the master because it is, a, it is a confrontation, if you will. It's a holding up a mirror so that they see themselves the way they should see themselves. I see myself the way I should see myself as a sinner. Not living up to God's righteous standard. I'm not... Holy, completely truthful. As a sinner, I see that and I know I can't live up to that. And the Galatians uh, letter teaches me and you that that law serves as a tutor to bring us to faith in Christ. So I see that, oh man, I've lied, I've stolen, uh, I've, I've, I've had thoughts, because by the way, Jesus takes that law that was on the external, that was written on the stone tablet, cold, hard stone, and, and again, we talk about it being on the heart of man, and so he says, look, I'm going to take it from the outside to the inside. You've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. I say if you look on, the, look on someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. That's internal. We're all guilty. And just in case you think, well, I've never done that, because a lot of times people say, well, I've never murdered. James reminds us that if you offend God in one point of the law, you're guilty as if you broke all the law. 
You hated your murderer. So again, the law still serves a purpose, but let's be clear. What's done away with? The old covenant practices, the ceremonial law. We're not still offering animal sacrifices, are we? Those civil laws that were given as a theocratic rule for the Israelites. The, the, we're not doing that today, are we? No. Now, some of our judicial system and our laws of our land are built upon those things, but guys, that's not, that's done. That served its purpose. And it had fault. It had flaws. What had fault? What had flaws? Well, let's keep reading because I propose to you it's not the law. It must be something else. So let's keep going. Let's see what else. So, again, we see here in verse 4 of the text in Hebrews 8, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, he's basically just saying, again, that Jesus is uh, of the tribe of Judah. There are already those who, who are in the Levitical line who are practicing. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, but uh, these guys are, are administering uh, an earthly, and Jesus is ministering in a heavenly If he were on earth, he couldn't be one of the Levitical priests. He's not of the line of the Levites. He's of the line of Judah. But he's of the order of Melchizedek. Even Abraham revered. So therefore, the great Abraham, who all these Jewish people looked up to, the argument that was given in the previous chapters of the lesser giving to the greater in the way of tithes, gave to Melchizedek. And so again, how much better is our high priest who serves and ministers in the sanctuary in the true heavenly of heaven? So, he goes on, he says in verse 5, notice this, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay, so again, what are the priests here on earth doing? They're simply, they're ministering in the copy, in the shadow. You good Jewish people, he's writing to you, you would know this, you would know that the truths in the heavenlies. Let me give you an illustration. Every once in a while, when I'm here at the office, I like to annoy my, uh, annoy my family. I like to annoy my family even when I'm not in the office. But sometimes when I'm here at the office, I like to annoy my family by FaceTiming them at the house. Okay? Anybody in here FaceTime? I don't blame you. With those mugs, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Just kidding, anyway. Uh, but seriously, I, 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 sometimes I will you know, dial them up and get their little face on there. Hey, everybody's talking to them. Now think about this. FaceTime is simply a copy. It's not them. <laughs> Newsflash, that is not your child. It is a computer screen, okay? That is not them. That is a copy of their image. But guess what? Because I see on this screen my child's face knowing it's a replica of the real It represents the real. 
And I'm going to tell you, as much as I love FaceTime, there is nothing better than in-home hug time where I get to get home and spend real time with my real children as opposed to the FaceTime. Guys, this replica, this representation, the instructions that was given to Moses to be given in the Levitical priesthood and the layout of the temple and its practices was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So here's the point. These priests are copies. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is better. Can I get an amen? Jesus is better. Copies and shadows. Since Jesus ministers in heaven rather than on earth, he's obtained a more excellent ministry. Excellent. Anyway, sorry. I had to to get that one in. (laughs) He, He has an excellent ministry. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Well, let's talk about this. Better ministry. Notice what Jesus had. had He's a better mediator. You know, he's your advocate right now. He's your lawyer defending you because you've got a real enemy who's accusing you night and day. Jesus is your advocate. He's your mediator. You have nothing to fear if you're in Christ Jesus. No one can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can pluck you from His hand. I mean, man, when you understand the deep and rich promises of who God is and who you are as an elect, as a chosen, as a child of the King, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, when you understand the better promises that you have in Christ Jesus... It ought to make you explode with enthusiasm. Well, I don't want to be exploding here, but you know what I'm saying? Enthusiasm in your heart of devotion. And man, praise God, it'll make a Baptist turn Bapticostal. We've got some promises. Better promises. Because think about the promises of the Old Covenant. What were the promises of the Old Covenant? You can go back through your Old Testament and highlight, but let me just give you a synopsis of Old Testament promises. Israel, if, circle that word, if you obey God, then blessing. Israel, if you disobey God, then curse. That's, I told you we are going to be very shallow here today, right? <laughs> That's about as shallow as I get. There were if-then promises that were contingent upon the behavior of Israel. The law, external, is always contingent on behavior, is it not? Boy, I love grace. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Internal, abiding. Better promises. What about better covenant? Better covenant. Better covenant. You know what I'm struggling with right now, right? Dean does. Man, there's too much to be talking about here in the better covenant. I'm going to stop. 
because I know if, I know myself. If I get into better covenant, y'all gonna be here to twelve forty-five. <laughs> so let me put the brakes on, and this is gonna hurt you guys in your studies tonight. So y'all stay on that first section of questions. All right. But this is too important. This is the part I, I prefaced in the beginning. So let me just kind of give you a preview. Next time on CBC. Okay. The covenants. And here's where we're going to talk about. There are two main veins in evangelicalism. There's, there's a lot of different, I mean, now we live in a plethora of, but, but let me give you two main veins, two main arteries. Covenant theology and dispensationalism. Covenant theology and dispensationalism. Okay? Even in our Baptist churches, our good Bible-believing churches, you're going to find those two main veins. Some of you have no clue what I'm even talking about. All right? And that's all right. We want to educate you on these things. But here's the idea. I will do this. Just by way of quick help, I'm going to, I'm going to show you a couple of little charts and we're going to close it out. Just because I've opened this subject. All right. Whoop, there it was. All right. Oh, great. Okay. So, comparison of theological systems. Right? I know you can't see this here, but I'll read it for you. Covenant theology, dispensational theology. The basic thought is this. In covenant theology, there is this idea of a covenant of grace. All right? There's this idea of a covenant of law. Um, there's the... Um, and, and by the way, there's a, there's a new one now that I'm trying to learn. Um, but this is the primary objective of God in the covenant theology is to develop, to develop an elect people. And here's the idea. Israel and the church are one people. The promises offered in covenant relationship to the Israelites are also promises fulfilled in essence and to the church. And the church is made up of Gentiles and Jews. And again, I know I'm doing an injustice here. I'm trying to tie this up so we'll, we'll get into it a little, little more pointed. Dispensationalism, the primary objective of God was to develop uh, a kingdom for, and again, it goes into, there were seven major dispensations, dispensation of innocence, that was in Adam's day, and then there was the fall, there was the dispensation of conscience, and that operated into the dispensation of human government, Tower of Babel, then the dispensation of promise, and again, that was uh, the patriarch system, then you've got the dispensation of law, which comes to the cross, which is some in dispensation would say, see, this is talking about doing away with the old, the old covenant and the new covenant in Christ, dispensation of grace, which we live in now, dispensation of the kingdom, which again, you get the tribulation period, you get all that stuff, and then you got the new heaven and the new earth. Dispensationalism believes this. Basically, God works in, in, in throughout history, administers in this economy... And it always starts with a test and ends with a judgment. Test and judgment, test and judgment, test and judgment. Okay? Covenant theology, again, 
and I'm loosely describing, sort of covers the same in, in administrative ways. It says, okay, well, God has a covenant of grace that is permeated throughout. But his covenant, because of the fault of the people in the law, in the Mosaic law, has now been uh, passed, if you will, to the, uh, to the Gentile. But they are one in Christ. All right, now again, I know that was, I butchered all of that. But that's okay, because we're going to look at it next time. Here's what I want you to know. These filters and how you live out your Christian faith are worthy of diving into because they have serious implications. We as a church are historically dispensational. Okay? People ask me, are you in other camps? What are you? I like to say I'm a biblicist. Okay? I like to say I'm a biblicist. Because there's a lot of tension built between covenant theology and dispensationalism. There's a lot of tension built between reform theology, replacement theology. There's a lot of tension built between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I believe on both sides of the aisle, there are great godly believers. History proves that. The main and the plain, Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. But we need to explore these thoughts because they're biblical thoughts. We need to wrestle with the tension that it presents because it sharpens us and it makes us grow in grace and knowledge. We don't need to shy away from these things. We need to study these things. Because that's where the deep well is reached. So we're going to look at this. We're going to talk about this next week. All right? This is where we're going. And I know for some of you are saying, I don't understand any of that. And I know I didn't help it. Forgive me. But we will clarify. But here's what I want you to know. God's grace is amazing. Christ is is our high priest. He has finished the work. We can talk about and we can debate and we can disagree and good brothers and sisters do on how this is going to play out. I believe there are some answers in the middle. I do. Because here's what I, I, I do believe. I'm going to show you my hand. I'm going to give you a little bit of my, show you my cards. The promises of Israel to Israel have not yet been fulfilled. And Romans 11 is my hinge pinch in this debate. Romans 11 makes it real clear there are distinct branches. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. Go home and read it. Some of you do know what I'm talking about. There are distinct branches. Israel's one and the Gentiles are one. 
One was broken off, one was grafted in. And the warning is that other one can be broken off and the other one can be grafted back in. And wrestle with this thought in our reference to Jeremiah. He said, the house of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So you've got to figure out what you're going to do if this is a promise to the church, if the church has the law written on their heart, if we as born-again believers now have the law written on our hearts and not, a, not some hard clay tablet, then are you a part of Israel? Are you a part of the house of Judah? Because this is what it said. It was to the house of Judah, the house of Israel. Or is there something else going on? Something else is going on. And we'll talk about that. We'll teach that. Thank you for letting me take that extra time. I know I muddied the waters even more, but we'll clarify it next week. All right? Maybe give you time to do some homework this week, and you can come back in with questions, and we can talk about it. Anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it would have been real easy to just not even talk about this. But Lord, thank you that that's not going to benefit anyone. And I realize there's, there's people here that... that uh, probably have no clue what I'm talking about and why this is even important. But Lord, it is. Doctrine is vital. Because to understand these teachings is to understand you more. And so... It would be like saying, well, I don't want to know you more, Lord. I'm good with where I'm at in this relationship. I don't want to go any closer. And so, Lord, help us, forgive us if we kind of have this idea of I'm good where I'm at in my walk. I got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. That's all that matters. Lord, no. Help us to grow in sanctification. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us as we prepare next week to, to really get this in focus. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's been shared that's been inaccurate or not clear, that, Lord, you will help uh, to just remove that. And, and, Lord, that next week we'll be able to really delve into this a little more deeper and clarify the issue at hand. And to be able to express why it's important. But Lord, here's the most important thing that I pray we do take away from this text. And this is our ap application. This is our conclusion. The writer is writing to plead with these Hebrew readers that the works of man are incomplete. Man cannot do this. We have fault. And Christ does not. He is our perfection. He is our priest. And we have better promises found in Him and His fulfillment. Why would we go to anything lesser? Why would we try in our own strength to get to heaven when Jesus has made a way? Lord, if there's someone here that does not know Him, may they come to Him today place their faith in His finished work. He has seated, He is seated at the right hand on the throne of majesty. It's finished. Surrender to Him today and may He minister to you with His saving grace.
In Jesus' name, amen.